I'm excited for today, not just because there's chili waiting for everybody, um, but because of the symbolism of today. Today is when we're celebrating 10 years since the public launch of Legacy Church. Um, 10 years ago, around-ish this time, we launched publicly with 19 people. Interesting fact, the week before we had 43. So we got up to like 45-ish people in the living room. We're excited about that. We're going to carry that momentum into this big launch. And we were going to see like 80 or 90 or maybe even 100 people. And we saw 19. We had 19. So it was like all volunteers and like three people sitting there. <laughs> you can still find the audio to that online. It's awesome. Um, so we'd love to have you come and join us. Love to have you, even if you don't bring chili. Love to have you. Even if you don't like chili, we'd love to have you. But if you do not like chili, come up and speak with somebody that we could be praying for you and show you in the Bible, right? Where chili is a very special food. No, just bring yourself and celebrate God with us. Um, Even if it's just for 20 or 30 minutes, we'd love to have you there. Um, Because a church's birthday, if anything, it's a testament of how sweet and powerful God is, how miraculous God's power is. I was talking to some other pastors the other day, uh, different kinds of churches, different sizes, and, I, and it came out of my mouth. I, I didn't even think about it. It just kind of came out. I said, isn't it a miracle that we could even do this thing? It's a miracle that churches even make it. It really is when you think about it. When you think about what God has done with his blood and what he has pulled together, this is, I mean, just the ability that his gospel has to take dissimilar people, as we were talking about in the partnership class, and gluing us together. We might not have any other thing that we would have an affinity towards each other for, but the blood of Jesus bringing us together. We're not really a team or a club. We're a community, a community that was bought by Jesus. So it's a miracle we've made it, or any church makes it, really. In fact, the parable that we're going to look at today is going to illustrate the truth I'm talking about. When we started dreaming about legacy back in 2009, we did not even know that the name was going to be legacy. We actually had a few other church names that were before that one. My, my wife talked me out of a couple of them. She said that one of them sounded like the name of a denim jean company at a mall. And so she said that one doesn't have very much credibility long term. So we ended up with legacy, but we didn't know how it was going to work. We didn't know who was going to come and help us plant it. We didn't know how we were going to pay for it. We didn't know anything. i tell you what we did know. We knew that there was going to be a lot of blood and sweat and tears invested into this. That we were very well aware of. Um, our pioneering team of three families had already been in two church plants. And so to some extent, we knew what was waiting for us. And in many ways, we got exactly what we thought we were going to get. And then in other ways, things did not turn out originally like we wanted. In all honesty, we had some pet projects, some, some, some ideas and hopes that we thought would be cool, didn't get off the ground. We had some resolutions, some endeavors that we felt very solid about at the moment, didn't even get off the ground. We failed a bunch in the early, early years, right? I think we've got a lot more failure left in us. <laughs> That's the good news. And, and between you and me, I have a medium-sized fear of failure, yet I'm also resolved and determined that the fastest way to get where you need to go is to fail as fast as possible. So I'm happy to fail with you even faster in the future than we have failed in the past. (laughs) And we've also seen some things bloom beyond what we thought was possible. God took our, our meager imaginations, our small hopes, and showed us that our thinking was too small. So legacy is very, very different than what we thought it was going to be, and it's far better than we thought it was going to be at the same time, at the same time. 
In the church leadership space, legacy is still considered a baby church, right? At the age of 10, it seems a little odd. 10 doesn't sound like a baby of anything. Um, we're still learning to get our voice, still learning how to walk. I mean, keep it into context. Uh, First Baptist Church of Knoxville, which is down the street and around the corner, they're 180 years old this year. Um, Cedar Springs is 226 years old. They've gone under six different names in four different locations, and they're on their 28th pastor. Right? That's an old church. We're still a baby church. Not a plant anymore, but still very vulnerable and statistically, the odds have been stacked against us like they've been stacked against any baby church, adolescent church under the age of 10. Some of the things that we have bumped into show us that we are not unique. Like, for instance, currently right now, as it has been the last 10 years, the same statistic, 85% of church plants fail before year four. 85, only 15% make it past the fourth year. That was a big birthday for us, by the way. A little bit of a line in the sand that we've made it. We at least beat the statistics by one day. But we knew even in that moment that all it was going to take was a stiff wind to blow us over. That's what it felt like. In fact, out of the 85% of church plants that fail before year four, 90% of the failures fail before the first 24 months are over. It's a quick fail. And by God's grace, by the time we hit that 24-month mark, we were already starting to put pen to paper to sketch out what our first pastoral and planting residency would look like. And out of that came Citizens Church, and they've already made it past their first dangerous 24 months. We still have hurdles to step over that are common to all churches our size and age. We are not unique in many ways. We're not unique. And we've also hit some solid brick walls together that, again, between you and me, I wasn't sure we were going to make it through. I just wasn't sure that was unique to us. 2017 to 2019, we had found a building, fell in love with a building, and then lost a building. That was hard for a lot of us. Right after that, we found a campus ministry, fell in love with a campus ministry, and then lost a campus ministry. That was equally hard for us, probably more difficult. Then we planted a church under great strain. That was really hard for us. In fact, looking back at the roles, Right after when we planted Citizens Church, within that six-month span of time, we had seven families relocate out of Knoxville. So in that six-month time between the church plant and the relocating families, we lost 75 adults. That was hard. That was hard. It was unique, and it was hard. One leadership coach told me that the average church hits a hard wall like that once every five years. We hit six in under three years. He found that to be very odd for us. So not all of our hurdles were common. In some ways, we had some unique scar tissue develop. Some of you were here for some of those moments. Some of you were here for all of those moments, and we share those scars. Most of you probably weren't. Stick around. There will be more scar tissue to develop over time, right? Because part of what makes us a family is not just the shared wins that we have together, but it's going to be the shared tears the shared heartache, the shared struggle. We endure together by God's grace through that. God gives us a grace to enjoy the highs and God gives us a grace to endure the lows and it's by God's grace that we get through the fog of what is happening and still have the desire and the heart to chart a, a course forward and say the great commission is before us and it's worth it and we're excited about it. That was all just a 2019 and then the pandemic came and legacy was exposed 
in both our strongest areas and our weakest areas. And we noticed, and we're still in this series of a little bit moving forward and a little bit stepping back, a little bit of forwards and a little bit backwards. I, I was thinking about this this morning when I was getting ready, and I remember being at Best This is true. This sums so much up. I was at Best Buy looking for a battery for a clip-on microphone because I was about to do my very first ever video sermon, right? This was minutes before Best Buy was going to lock the thing down for weeks. They were about to lock the doors and shut down for weeks, right? This is right when the quarantine was, when everyone was panicking, right? And so I'm looking at the batteries and I'm thinking, I don't know what battery fits the dumb microphone. It's like this big, I mean, have you ever shot for batteries this small? There's like 10 different sizes that are this small. I'm like, I don't know. But and as I'm trying to look at the aisle and trying to figure out and discern what I need, and I'm texting people as fast as I can, employees are coming up to me like, listen, we're only open for like one more minute. So, and then we're going to shut down forever because the end of the world is here. So you better figure out what you want and get it done. So I did this. I scooped them all into the basket. I bought them all. I bought every battery they had because I thought at least I have a chance of having the right one to fit in this stupid little microphone. And then we went home and I dug up a camera that we'd never used before. It only cost 300 bucks. I forgot we even had it. We never used it before. Charged it, plugging wires in until five minutes before we went live, negotiating with Facebook to make sure that it was gonna work. Some of you remember that. We were on Facebook for the very first one. We weren't on YouTube. And then bam, we were live right? Didn't even know what we were doing. We had no idea what we were doing. We we're just making it up as we went along, right? And since then, we've launched over 100 videos, still fighting hard to keep everyone connected. Some people are watching right now. We aim to never stop teaching and preaching God's word to those in our church that were scattered, not just gathered, but scattered, right? So we had a little bit of give and a little bit of take, we also had seven to eight family units leave during this pandemic since it started. One of them just last week, right? Talking to them on the phone as they're driving out of town to go move to somewhere else, USA. Let me just tell you, those are the hardest conversations for me. I hate that part about my job. It is the worst. It's the pits saying goodbye. You know, I've even told a couple people, listen, if you ever want to move back to Knoxville, I will out of my personal account buy your moving truck. I will pay for your moving to come back here. I think of Ephesians, or the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, when Paul is saying goodbye, and they are saying goodbye to him, and there's a lot of tears. You've had moments like that, right? Some of you are in missional communities, where you had a party to say goodbye to somebody, and it just didn't feel so much like a party, did it? It's hard. It's hard to say goodbye. But also, we've had a few partnership classes since the pandemic, and we've added 37 new partners. 37 new partners since the pandemic started. A little bit of give, a little bit of take, a little bit of backwards, a little bit of forwards. We also struggle to keep our missional communities on mission because it's hard to be on mission when the world is shut down. It's hard to be community when the world is shut down because Zoom, let's face it, how awesome can you make it? right? You could have circus animals and the Apostle Peter there, and you can make it as cool as you want, and it's still going to lack the very thing that we are all wanting, which is physical space, physical touch, physical presence. That's what we all really wanted. And yet, it was our comm groups that held it all together. It, it was our leaders and our co-leaders and our hosts that held this church together. It certainly wasn't this, right? It was you guys that did it. We've actually grown three new ones since the pandemic. So a little bit backwards, a little bit forwards. We stretched the very edges of our pastoral board 
as we scrambled to make sure that everybody was as healthy as possible as we can be in something like a pandemic, and it exhausted us as church leadership, as a staff, to make sure that everybody was cared for. Two of our brave and selfless pastors are now on sabbatical. It was hard. We've also, in that same amount of time, started a second pastoral residency, figuring that the best way to build the future of the pastoral leadership in this church and in other churches was to do it in the middle of a season where leadership was very difficult. This is as good a time as any for that. Like I said last week, we have so much downstream of us as a church. We have so much building, so much growing, so much maturing. Currently, some of the things we get to talk about, which are benchmarks for a baby church, is expanding our middle school ministry, really focusing hard on our teens. What will it look like in the next few years as far as how we build disciples out of our teenagers? We're adding new pastors to our pastoral board, which is going to make us a healthier church. We've refined what it looks like for our facility, our, our facility search, what that's going. We've even started having talks about what will it look like and when do we pull the trigger on hiring a second pastoral position. These are all big things for a church our size. So we're still an adolescent church, and there's so much we're dreaming about, so much we want to see happen. Our best days are before us. We have so many wins, and we have a lot of failures in front of us, and I'm all in. I'm all in. And listen, if it sounds like I'm praising man for God's work, let me just remind you of the church's name. We named the church to illustrate that the best legacy story to ever be told to the next generation is Jesus's. It's not ours. That's why we named it Legacy Church. The legacy we hand down to our kids and their kids to their kids, that by God's grace in 225 years, like Cedar Springs, when they're on their seventh location, probably won't even be called Legacy Church then, that the story that they tell will be about Christ. His story is our legacy. Our story is a footnote, and it only makes its best sense when it illustrates the grander storyline. I assume we'll be around in another 10 years. We'll have a different logo. We'll have a different website. Have another 500 sermons on the books. Probably would have planted another two churches. Our fifth or sixth pastoral residency. Massive youth group. These are the things that I'm expecting. But it's all his work that we're taking custodial care of. It's all God's work in us. That I know. It's all built by his muscle, his kindness, his thoughtfulness, in his timing, with his pace, according to his plan for his glory. So this parable today is for us on a significant day like today for us as we balance what it looks like God is doing around us with what God is actually doing around us because they're not the same most often what it looks like God is doing in our midst to what God is actually doing in our midst. This parable is for those of us who sow seeds, water seeds over and over again, but still have a chance to look around and say, nothing is happening. I've told this person about Christ 38 times. Nothing is happening. I keep working with my neighbors about the story of the gospel and nothing is happening. I'm sowing, I'm watering, I'm sowing, I'm watering, and nothing And listen, it might feel like you're insignificant as a missionary because nothing you sow is growing. Nothing you water seems to be healthy. And then just add to this all the statistics and the things that you hear showing society that no one's really even interested in the church anymore. People are drifting away from even asking the questions about Christ and themselves that they were asking 20, 30, 40 years ago. Listen, Jesus knew that we would feel this way. Jesus knew that you would need an encouragement 
So he gave us this parable. This parable in disciple making. And so we're going to look at Matthew 13, verse 31. This is an interesting one, actually, because it's a duplet. Um, it's two tiny parables kind of seamed together to generate the same main idea. It's going to help us a lot today, specifically because they are together. And just the context before I read, these are in Christ's finalish days. You're going to find this in the other Gospels, the synoptic ones anyway. So you'll find this same one in Luke and in Mark. Um, so this is when his opposition, uh, you know, his opposition went through stages. They were intrigued a little bit, right? And then they moved to annoyed. Now they're just enraged and they're just looking for a way to kill him. This is really a parable that's coming to us from death row. You could think of it that way. And this is what he says in verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and take nests or make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Okay, mustard seeds were not the smallest seeds of the day. There were smaller seeds, all right? But that was the seed, the mustard seed, was the one that they used proverbially to describe something that was insignificant, right? When something was as tiny as a mustard seed, that was another way of saying it is very insignificant, which is why we see Jesus and Matthew saying, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, then nothing will be impossible to you, right? But when mature, the mustard plant was actually bigger than the homes that they lived in, 12, 15 foot big. They're Big, big plants. So the main idea of that first part of the parable is that insignificant beginnings can actually create some significant endings. That's the obvious meaning of this. And then he adds yeast, which layers on a dimension to this parable because yeast is a change agent. Listen, if you don't know much about yeast, that's fine. I don't know very much about yeast either. I mean, I had to really spend some time looking online to learn what yeast is, and I was just as bored as I thought I would be. It's just not that interesting, right? But this is one thing I could tell you about yeast, is if you had 100 pounds, 100 pounds of flour and one pound of yeast, it turns the whole batch. It's a one to 99 ratio of how fast and how thoroughly it can change. It's amazing how much just a little bit of tiny yeast will irreversibly and powerfully change something. So the big idea here is that insignificant things can grow large and they can change thoroughly. So what we're supposed to carry away from this duplet is that unimpressive things in form can have an impressive ending, an impressive effect, and the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. Now, why do you think they needed to hear this? Why do you think the disciples needed to hear this? The same exact reason we do. We're with them and they're with us in this. They expected the kingdom to expand impressively from the gun. Impressive things, we are convinced, build other impressive things. Big things build other big things. We love impressive things and we could be fooled into thinking that the only way to get a significant result is to have a significant beginning. And that's where the hook is. Remember last week when we looked at the, uh, the anatomy of a parable, we found that every good parable has a hook, a pivot, this unexpected hairpin turn where something different than what we'd expected is happening. And that is where the truth is actually buried. And the hook for us here is that we 
expect only impressive moments to build other impressive moments. And so when we look around and we see nothing impressive, what are we left with? We feel like we are unimpressive. Listen, we couldn't be more dead wrong about this, by the way. Could not be. Jesus came in a manger. <laughs> how, how impressive is that? That's about as insignificant as it comes. And then the town he grew up in wasn't even a small dot on the map. Probably wasn't even on the map. Didn't even have a, didn't even have a Bucky's on the corner. Didn't, it didn't have a Lowe's. It was just a speck. It was just a nowhere. His family was a no one. Right? His career as a carpenter was a nothing and even when Jesus recruited Team Jesus around him, who did he find if not for insignificant people? People that were not very impressive. And every time there was a moment for him to flex and be impressive, what did he do? He retreated. I mean, Jesus is a living mustard seed. He's an embodiment. He's an embodiment of what we're talking about right now. The kingdom runs on different physics than ours. The kingdom of God runs on different economics than ours. So take whatever you know about building a company, building a club, building a business, building a team. Take whatever you know and toss it. The kingdom is different. The kingdom is why he's given us parable after parable after parable to describe what a kingdom is. Kingdom is different. This is a solid reminder for us as a 10-year-old church. With all that is downstream of us, we know one thing. God will not depend on our impressiveness to build his kingdom or church. And yet, God will get his impressive ending. God will have it. The kingdom of God will have an insurmountable ending. And here's the issue that we have when we hear a statement like that. Today it looks like this parable is wrong. It looks dead wrong. It looks like it might have been true back then, but it's not true anymore. Churches are disappearing and Christians are shrinking in number. That's a fact, at least here in the West. Right, right now as I give this sermon, 29% of lead teaching pastors, that's the position I hold here, 29% of lead teaching pastors in America are currently looking to quit. 29% currently looking to quit. They're done. They're done. I know a few. Personally, just in the last 18 months, I know of eight who have left their position or are on the very, the very edge of leaving their position. Eight. In fact, last year, the exit rate for lead teaching pastors doubled just last year alone. We talked about the nuns and the duns last week. The nuns are those who grew up, it's a category, a demographic of people who grew up with no religious affiliation. The duns are those who have discarded any religious affiliation that they grew up with. And the nuns and duns have grown by double digits just in the last 15 years. That's amazing. The sharpest drop in church membership or partnership, however you want to call it, we'll just say church presence, if you, if you want to shoot a little bit more broadly, the sharpest drop is in Gen Z and millennials, pointing to big trouble downstream, by the way. My replacement's likely in Generation Z somewhere right now, or a millennial, right? It's gonna, th this, this points to trouble downstream. I have yet, all this to say I have yet, I have yet, I have yet to see a promising statistic on the future of the church in any category. I haven't found one. No one's given me one. No one's discovered one. I haven't seen it. Besides maybe rap music, right? Christian rap has gotten very much better in the last 20 years than it was 20 years ago. But besides that, it feels like the Western church expansion is over, right? And Jesus knew there would be dark winters, just like this, the Roman persecution, the Crusades, the French Revolution, that weird speck of time right before the Reformation. Today is not unique. So he takes this parable as a gift and he hands it to you 
into me about the kingdom of God, and we need to hear it. Some of you are unfamiliar with the phraseology of kingdom of God. What's the difference between the kingdom and the church? And, and that's a good question. There, there is a difference. The kingdom of, of God is not smaller than a local church, but it is much bigger than a local church. So I want you to think reign. Don't think people. Don't think place. Reign. Rule. God's kingdom is his reign and his rule. It's not totally here. It was inaugurated. It is in our midst, as we're told in the New Testament. The kingdom of God is at hand, we're told, but it's not here totally yet. Right? It's here, and it's not totally here. We're actually in between what we call Advents, the time where the kingdom was inaugurated and the time where it will be consummated. So the first Advent is what we celebrate with Christmas. Jesus comes, that's the first Advent. Advent just means coming, right? That is God's first coming to mankind. And then from there, the kingdom is inaugurated. We are in that season right now. There will be a time where he comes back and consummates it all in his second Advent, his second coming, right? But right now, we're hearing this weird little at the real place of it's here and it's not quite here yet. But this is what we do know about the kingdom. Nothing dominates it. The gates of hell can't claim one square inch of it. It advances and it expands. And his rule is not intimidated by our statistics. It's not. Local churches, they come and go. Legacy won't be around forever. Neither will Cedar Springs, right? And just because a church is big doesn't mean it's safe. Mars Hill in Seattle, 15,000 people gone in a month. Gone in a month. Churches come and go. Shouldn't shock us though, nations come and go. <laughs> Nothing is permanent, but God's kingdom does not swerve a millimeter. Not one millimeter. His church is part of an expanding kingdom, but the kingdom is bigger than the local church. And his kingdom will burst upon the scene when we least expect it. We looked at this a little bit last week, right? I am resolved. You can't talk me out of this. You just can't. You can do your best. It won't work. You cannot talk me out of the understanding that we are around the corner from another awakening and another revival. I know that sounds weird. I know it sounds awfully dark, like that can't happen today. I can't be convinced that it's not going to happen. It is going to happen. That's one of the things that keeps me so excited. I want legacy to be at a healthy place that we could catch the wave. We could catch that wave and just be a disciple-making factory. I'm not missing out on that. I'm not. But even if we were to take everything that I've said and scope it down for you personally, as you sit in that seat as an individual, this parable matters for you. It will turn discouragement into durability when we cannot see the growth around us. This parable is for discouraged disciple-makers. Right? It greets those of us who sow and water and see nothing. We try. Try with our parents, try with our neighbors, our coworkers, and nothing. And then the statistics roll over us about how no one even cares about Christianity anyway. No one cares about the church or God. So what's the use? I'm obviously not gifted for it. I'm not seeing anything happen around me. I'm not that impressive. I don't see any impressive thing happening around me. So what's the use? And as we looked at last week, that's why many people are hanging on for dear life as they collect seashells waiting for the end to come. They don't see the fields white for harvest. They don't see the kingdom expanding and advancing. How many people have you tried to extend the love of God to? How many people have you tried to preach the gospel to in some way, shape, or form? Whether it was a seed here or a seed there, or you came back and you double-clicked on something and watered a seed maybe a month later, only to see nothing, absolutely nothing, for weeks, months, years, 
ever. I have worked for years with some people to show Jesus in a clear and compelling way to seemingly see nothing. Years with people still doing it, right? So Jesus says, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed. It's like a seed, right? It's hidden when it's working. When it's working, you can't see it. And when it's working, it's slow, right? It's slow. We can't miss this. This is a big aspect of our parable. From insignificant beginnings, it changes thoroughly and it does it large. And yet the work is hidden and it is slow. I keep in touch with a a couple, a family really, but more or less a couple that was my Sunday school teacher. I didn't know Jesus. It was pre-salvation. It was a Sunday school class with a couple other teens. It was a church that was probably smaller than Legacy, to be honest with you. And I would go every Sunday morning with two other high schoolers and listen to this couple. They weren't professionals. He was a CPA. She was a teacher. Right? And they poured and they sowed and they watered and they sowed and they watered. Listen, I gave them nothing. I gave them nothing. No indication that anything was growing in here. I came for the donuts and the girls. That's it. Don't expect anything else from me. And so they probably thought, they had to have thought, they had to have gotten in the car on the way home and thought, this guy, this moron, man, is anything going to happen with him? Is God doing any? I was giving them nothing for years. And then when God decided in his wise planning to break open my heart and give me a heart of flesh instead of an unfeeling heart of stone, you know what happened? All the seeds they sown sprouted. Like that. I've told this story before. It felt like a door was open and everything that they had invested, all those pylons and foundational truths were obvious to me. They just became obvious. It's like everything came rushing into my heart and my soul. They sowed and they watered. I gave them nothing. Nothing. You might not be the one to see the sprouting seed in someone, just the one to sow it. Just the one to water it. That might be all God has you do with somebody. That might be the role you play, to sow and 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 water and water and see nothing for years. And you could still be faithful. This is what Paul says to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 3, because they were getting really weird and campy. I know that's odd. Churches don't usually do that, right? But that's what they were doing. And he says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This is interesting. It's interesting that Paul had this freedom to say, hey, I'm just going to play my part. But I'm not going to feel any condemnation if I don't see the grave. If I'm not the one that gets to close the deal and pray for them to accept Jesus, whatever that means. He, he wasn't concerned with that. He didn't need to anchor himself to that identity. He was free to just be someone who sows. And if Apollos is the one that saw the growth happen before his eyes, he was fine with that. There was a freedom for him to evangelize. Listen, we, we lack the stomach for this kind of plowing a lot of times, don't we? Because it just feels like failure. We have to remind ourselves that it's the Spirit of God that launches disciples. It's his work, and it is hidden, and it is slow. But it's his work. Just like Jesus told Nicodemus, it's like the wind blasting through a tree canopy. You don't know where it came from. don't even really know where it's going. You just know it's there. But it's up to him. It's his will. He's doing as he sees fit. So preach. Sow. Water. Repeat. 
Sow, water, repeat over and over and over, and then let God do as he sees fit. Risk yourself. Plow. Extend the gospel for years, and then trust that God will breathe where he feels like breathing. That's what it means. That's what, that's what evangelism is. Listen, William Carey, where I went to school was in the School of Missions and Anthropology. That's when I went to seminary, the speck of time I did it. William Carey is a big figure there because he's considered the father of modern mission. Right? He went to India to plant churches. As it goes, and I did the best fact-checking I could find, I found out that it was, in fact, about 14 years before he found his first convert. 14 years. 14 Christmases of nothing. 14. And then it was another seven years before that disciple made a disciple. 21 years of a lot of the same. That's some dogged determination, right? That's some unimpressive seed dropping for 14 years. And this is one of the quotes he is most well known for in the missions world. He says, I can plod. That is my only genius. I can plod. That's all I got. That's all I know. He's not super gifted. He's not over the top gifted. He just knew how to plow. He knew how to drop his head, be obedient, and be content with God doing as God sees fit so he doesn't feel defeated and condemned every time he preaches the gospel and all he's getting is middle fingers in return. Right? Listen, the kingdom of heaven is like a seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed. We don't have to be impressive. We don't have to speak impressively when the very story we're extending, the legacy that we're handing to other people is in itself the power of life and death. And it is very impressive. That's what we have. Look at this kiddo living his best life. What's up, dude? (laughs) There is a second place of repentance for us. Not just in maybe feeling the condemnation and judging ourselves, and really kind of waffling away from evangelism because it is so hard for us, but maybe another place of repentance is not sowing and not watering out of a fear, a fear of what people will think. Listen, disciple-making is both a joy to us and it is a death to us. Some of you know this. If you're evangelists, if you extend the word of God, if you minister to people, if you just take care of people, if you're missional by your words, you're missional by your deeds, you know this. There's a death involved in it. To extend the gospel means to die in some areas. Lose your reputation, lose your time, lose your comfort, lose your energy, lose more energy, spend even more time, lose even more of your reputation. This is what it looks like. I think many people ignore the Great Commission even though they'd never go to a church that denies the Great Commission. Many people do not want to make disciples even though they demand that other people disciple them. What's the difference? What's the difference? It's, it's simply this fear of dying. It's this fear of decreasing so that others can increase. But is this not the shape of Christ? We see in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talking to the same Corinthian church, he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. A seed is no good unless it's sown into the ground, right? That's what we see, and Jesus is the ultimate seed. Jesus is our uber seed, our ultimate seed, who he sowed himself into the ground, the belly of the earth, only to bloom from the tomb later on as the firstborn of all creation, 
our older brother, I guess you can say in accurate words. He is the head of the church. He is the senior pastor, even of this church. I'm not the senior pastor of Legacy. I'm just a guy. I'm a pastor that leads with other pastors. Christ is the senior pastor of Legacy Church. He is. I mean, the kingdom in you and me, as it broke into the darkness that was our soul, as the kingdom breaks into us miraculously, it wouldn't even happen and grow unless he took death for us on the cross so that we would have that level of life. And so as he disciples us, we walk in the same path. That is what our discipleship looks like as well. If you want to see the kingdom grow, you need to know it's going to require personal cost and endurance that trusts God. So ask yourself, are you free? Do you feel the freedom to sow and water and other people for the rest of your life? Even if you never seen a reciprocation, even a vapor of promise from them. Do you feel the freedom to do that? Day after day, year after year? Are you free to evangelize and just let God have the growth? Are you free to walk in such a way that you might be the person that all you do is so and so and so and so and so and yet you're forgotten about, right? And 10 years down the road, that person becomes radically born again for Christ and they can't even remember your name. You are the one that sowed in their life. They can't even remember your name. I'll tell you this, the best evangelist in the world, you've never heard of, I think. I think we will all get to the end of all ends and meet people that we've never seen before, the most fruitful, obedient evangelist, probably very unheard of. They are the ones who sowed and watered and who are content with God being impressive while not judging themselves for the lack of seeming fruit that they saw in their life. And listen, if you're listening, whether you're online or not, and you would say that you are far from Christ, or, or maybe you just don't know. Maybe you don't know where you're at with Christ. You suspect you're not super close. Whether you're a Christian or not, you kind of always put a question mark on the end of that statement as you talk to yourself because you're just not that sure. You had moments with Jesus back in the day, and then you've had moments where you, you were very far from Jesus. And it's just a big fog for you. Can we at least agree on something that is probably less ambiguous, and that is that people have sown seeds with you and watered them? People have invested in you? Let me just tell you, God gets what he wants, and his kingdom cannot be stopped. If you sense God is working on your heart, you need to know that this is the first sign of his grace and the first sign of his mercy towards you. The fact that you're even feeling. The fact that you can even look at your sin and say, I don't want this anymore, is a gift of God to you. The very fact that you have this thing called faith, that you could look upon God and say, I trust you. That's a gift. You didn't generate that from your own faculties. Maybe you sense God is doing this with you. Let me just tell you, God's kingdom in you means God's reign in you. That means life is never going to go back to normal. Never. You have a new economics and a new kingdom, a new pledge of allegiance. There's a new physics to it, new traditions, new constitution, and you're now an ambassador of this kingdom. You represent this kingdom as a sojourner and as a traveler here. I'll just say this. If God is working in you, let us as a church help you through that. There, there is nothing more frustrating than living in a fog of not knowing where you're at with the Lord. I did it for years. Hey, I'm not ashamed to say I did it as a pastor. Not even sure. There's no shame in that. Let us help you. 
Let us walk with you as you start to maybe parse out what exactly is God doing in you. Maybe not even sure with whether he would call you a friend or not. We could be helpful. If you're watching online, be sure to call or email us and let us help you. Let us call and contact you and walk you through. If you're here, don't leave without coming up and, and talking to me about that. If God is working on you, let us help you.